it's me, Esme Benjamin, and you're listening to my new podcast about that time in a woman's life when her ambition begins bumping up against her biological clock. With midlife on the horizon, she must decide what matters most and how to prioritize it. These are years that are filled with big choices and big feelings about those big choices. These are her legacy years. It's the very first episode of the Legacy Years podcast, and I am so happy to say that my very first guest is the screenwriter Kristen Newman. Kristen's been working in Hollywood for over 20 years, and she's worked on lots of shows that you would recognize, like How I Met Your Mother and That 70s Show. But I actually first discovered her work through her very popular, very funny memoir, What I Was Doing While You Were Breeding. It chronicles Kristen's adventures as a successful 30-something career woman who takes every opportunity to travel the world, having lots of vacation romances, while all her friends back home are getting married and having babies. The twist in the end is that Kristen does in fact settle down and have a baby. (laughs) I wanted to ask Kristen about her illustrious career and how she established herself in Hollywood during the pre-Me Too era. Her compulsion to live a dramatic, what she calls story-worthy life, and then the experience of writing about that life for the page and for the screen. Whether she ever felt left behind during the years when, you know, she was mostly traveling and having fun and her friends were starting families. And I also wanted to know about her own path to motherhood and how that played out because I know Kristen had her daughter via an egg donor, and she's generous enough to share the logistical and emotional aspects of that experience in this episode. There's so much wisdom and just so much good stuff in this conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with Kristen, and I hope you guys will enjoy listening in. Kristen, welcome to the Legacy Years. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I just reread your book, so it's all still fresh in my mind. It's oh, so well. good. <laughs> it's still so well, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I had to reread it this year because I'm making a show based on it. And I felt that way about some parts of it and not that way about other parts of it. So I'm doing a little second edition wherein I'm like, you know, there's some moments that haven't aged as well as I would have hoped. So I'm going through it. So I'm glad people still like it. That is the thing about putting work out there in the world is inevitably you come back to it and you're like, oh no, why did I do this? <laughs> Not yeah, all of it. Hopefully think- there are some parts you're super proud of, but there'll always be a few things where like maybe it doesn't feel as appropriate or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm glad I'm having this little opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, make things better that I feel like are important now that the world has gotten um, worse. And so some things are more serious and and I have learned and changed and it's all good. I think it is a great idea to write a memoir right before you're going to die, um, which helps avoid these kinds of things. I think that's why maybe your life story is often written close to when you hope you're going to be dead. So I recommend that to people. Oh my God. Okay. Before we get fully into your book, um, I want to ask you, when you were young and envisioning your future, what were you certain that you wanted for yourself? I always said that I wanted to have one baby when I was 50. That was something that I apparently said at like 10. Uh, It always sounded like something you should do after you were done. I always used this word done. um, And people would always try to get clarity from me on what that meant. Like, does that mean like you're ready to die? And I think it just sort of meant like I had, I always knew I needed to kind of prove something to myself um, first. And it, always felt uh, inherently like I wasn't going to be able to prove that thing as a mother. Uh, And now that I am a mother, I think I was right because there is uh, an array of things that you just do dramatically differently. And everything is, everything changes when you have this human who comes first before yourself, it changes everything. And I, and I always, I think felt like I needed time to be selfish and time to um, be a little bit reckless and um, all of the things that you just aren't anymore once you have a kid. So I wanted to have a big wild life. I kind of always idealized being something like a photojournalist in a war, despite the fact that I have no desire to put myself in really um, 
dangerous situations. And I've also had this repercussion happen since I gave birth that I always was real judgy about um, that just happened to me too, which is that I have a very low tolerance for um, very, very depressing situations, uh, like depressing books, depressing movies, anything that I'm going to have to really dive into feeling really terribly about the state of the world or what's happening to other human beings. I can't handle the way that I could before, uh, you know, terrible things happening to a world that children had to live in or terrible things happening to children. Anything that involves children, I just kind of can't quite handle anymore. Uh, and while I didn't have a child, I did a lot of judging people for um, not for saying things like that, because after all, there are the people who have to live through the things that um, I don't want to think about too closely sometimes. Uh, however, here it is. So I'm glad that I took that time to have a kid late, which I almost made 50. It was 42, which is pretty close. I relate to everything you just said so very much. <laughs> I actually just on my lunch break was listening to um, The Retrievals, the new serial podcast. Mm -hmm. It's about women going through fertility treatments or freezing their eggs. And the nurse was stealing the fentanyl. And so they were just getting saline solution. Anyway, I was, they oh. were in, yeah, the pain. I mean, it was ridiculous. So I was listening to it. Then I was like, you know what? No, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Any Anything depressing, anything difficult. I'm like, no, it's just too much. But especially, yeah. as you said, anything to do with kids. It's, oh. Yeah. Harrowing. And what women go through to have babies. I mean, mm. well, we could talk all about my little journey. But what I really came away from the experience that I had with after living in a hospital for three months in labor and delivery is just what a blood sport uh, baby making is whether or not it's just the easy you had sex one day and then you uh, went to term and then you uh, delivered your baby vaginally uh, whether it's that that's very bloody that's a very painful bloody experience that way um, or any of the other horrific ways that the people who lived in the hospital around me um, went through that involved real tragedy and real um, and real suffering uh, and then Thank you, ma'am. May I have another? Was the reaction to so many of those women around me in that hospital? Like I'm the one of the only ones who hasn't had another baby after we all shared this insane, awful experience um, of living in a in a labor and delivery ward and then a NICU for months at a time. Uh, women are amazing, and what they are willing to um, live through and take in order to make more humans so that we can all continue on on this earth uh, is mind-numbing. I really want to talk about all of that um, a little bit later, but first let's start with career stuff. I'd love to dive <laughs> into when you first knew that you were a really funny person. Mm, that's really hard to say. I There's a funny thing where I never thought, oh, I'm so funny, I should become a comedy writer. And in fact, a couple of times when I said, oh, I'm going to be a comedy writer when I was in my 20s and an assistant and trying to do it, I had a couple of relatives say things like, huh, I never thought of you as particularly funny. Um, so that was that was encouraging. Um, yeah, I think that I just wanted to be a writer who worked with other people. And I had learned about what a comedy room is, which is a group of people sitting around a table together, kind of having the best dinner party in the world. All day long and I don't like to sit alone with a computer well, I'm getting better at it but I used to really be bad at it and so I just liked the collaboration uh, element of of making tv and making comedy specifically um there was a moment when I was an assistant and was the 23 year old blonde girl um in a room full of white men trying to get taken seriously where I thought uh oh I think I have to do stand-up uh, so that because that, that's something that makes people go like, OK, you know, OK, she's a comedian. And I started to write jokes and that was going to be a tragically painful experience like it is for 100 percent of people who do stand up for usually a few years. You kind of have to be ready to bomb. And thank merciful God, I got given my first um, script as a writer's assistant on that 70s show uh, to write before I had to get up on a stage. And then the script went well enough that I then got promoted and got to be a writer on that staff for six more years after that. Uh, so thank God I skipped that because that would have been so uncomfortable and painful for everyone. And every time I go to somebody's 
comedy performance and it's not good. I just, I just think, God, why are you doing this to all of us, to yourself? You're making the world such a sad, painful place for you <laughs> and your friends. And I just, I would have had to do that. I would have done that to people. And I'm, I'm so grateful I didn't have to. But is there a tiny bit of that stand-up experience that also is present in the writer's room? Like, how does it work? You'll, you come out with a joke and then everyone's like, that's yes. terrible. Oh, no. it's abusive. It's a terribly <laughs> abusive place. Yeah, maybe it's worse because you're right there with people who can really have a conversation with you about how bad your joke was or what your idea was. But I did learn little tricks by being a writer's assistant, which is you're typing everything down that everybody is pitching even when they die. Uh, and so you get to watch. And it's sort of like grad school. And there are tricks of the trade for when those moments happen, which is making a funny self-deprecating joke about how bad your joke was that makes people laugh. And then they walk away from the experience thinking you're a funny person, even if you didn't get something out of the script. That's a classic, classic go-to move that if you can pull it off, you can continue your career. Because I, I had somebody tell me once um, when I was really... Uh, early into my career, uh, a friend who I then set up with my best friend who then they got married and had some babies. And he was on the 70s show staff too. And he said, remember that professional baseball players bat 300, right? So that means like two or three out of every, I can't do math, two out of every <laughs> three hits, two and a half out of every three hits, you have to strike out. You have to not hit the ball. And that's the best in the world, right? Like 300 is hitting amazing. So if you're not the best in the world, you're probably swinging and missing five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 times before you hit one. And so he told me that story as a way of saying, keep pitching basically, um, which to, for better or worse, I think that is my strongest suit in a writer's room is I talk a lot and I keep pitching. So eventually I get enough in that I think I add some value. Did you have to cultivate a thicker skin or was that something you feel like you've always had to a certain degree? No, I cried. I cried a lot in my um, in the privacy of my own um, office early on. And it was also a different time when, uh, you know, again, I was one of usually two women in a writer's room uh, that was kind of out of 12 or um, or more. And also it was a time when, you know, I would pitch a bad joke and my boss would say, ah, oh, sit on my lap and pitch it again. I bet I'll like it better. Oh, or, oh do some jumping jacks and pitch it. Then we'll like it. Or, or, oh, isn't she pretty? Isn't she pretty? That was nice. I chopped my <laughs> hair off. I didn't wear makeup. I tried to dress as much like a Jewish man as possible, which meant gray, navy, blue or black T-shirts and jeans and tennis shoes. Like I had a uniform that tried to make me look as little like a blonde 20 year old with big boobs as humanly possible to try to just avoid as much of that as possible. That doesn't happen anymore. People are even getting in trouble for just being mean now, which is a whole new category of me tooing that I had no idea was going to get to happen, um, which is interesting and complicated in its own ways um, because some people just interpret a boss saying no to them as being inherently mean. So this is this is a part of that equation that I'm not quite sure how to navigate, but it is great that people can't make people cry anymore. Um, but that's what it was. And so I did get a very thick skin. And honestly, I think I internalized a lot of um, a lot of all of that. Like I think a lot of my generation did where if people couldn't develop that thick skin and take the severe amount of sexual abuse abuse and harassment and discrimination and just general toxic awfulness that was just thought of as part of a writer's room, part of a comedy room, especially, I would just tell them it's just not the right business for mm. you. Like, this is what it is. If you can't take it, it's not the right job. And it just never honestly occurred to me until this new generation came along who Amy Schumer has this great moment in her standup that she does like, a couple of shows ago, I think, where she talks about being Gen X um, and having like millennials come along and say, hey, have you guys been getting like sexually harassed and, and discriminated against like all like a lot? And we're all like, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And and then they would say, um, do you want to do anything about that? And then we would say, huh. OK. And that hadn't occurred to us. All right. Let's 
okay, let's drop something. I don't know. Like <laughs> really it hadn't occurred to us and God bless like the next kind of generation. It's done that for so many categories of, of abuse and toxicity. Uh, but it really hadn't occurred to me. And so I did get a very thick skin and that's honestly one of the very reasons that I so desperately needed to travel every year was this other self that I felt like I got to be when I was especially by myself traveling, but definitely away from a comedy room. And especially in countries where I couldn't speak, you know, couldn't speak the language because I couldn't be funny, couldn't be fast. I, nobody could really be mean to me because they didn't know me well enough. And I, so I could just slow down and not be a funny person and not have that be part of my personality, which meant I could be softer and slower and more open and less judgmental and all the things that I kind of professionally had to cultivate. Um, so it also led to my love of travel and and all the things that have come that are good career-wise and um, creativity-wise after that. So, you know, the bad things lead to good things always too. Mm, they do. I think you touched on something interesting then, which is the way that travel allows us to try on different identities. Mm-hmm. I feel like I call it transitional travel, but it's kind of like, you know, when you're going through something maybe it's just something as basic as finishing up one job and starting a new job, or maybe you've gotten divorced or you're um, going through grief, whatever it is. And you feel like you need kind of a reset or something. I call it, sometimes I call it a palate cleanser between like life courses, you know, and travel is so good at doing that. Yes. And the main reason is that I feel like it resets your brain because you have to think about something different just to exist and stay alive. There's so much brain space, especially when you're traveling by yourself, because it's scary sometimes. Um, even just if you're apparently the greatest fear that people cite when, for not traveling alone is fear of loneliness, like above safety concerns. That's their number one fear. And I completely get that. So if, even if it's just fear of that and like, how do I find some people to talk to so I'm not lonely or how do I get through my day? Um, it you can't think about your divorce or the death or the lost job or the breakup or whatever it is, because you're like, where do I eat safely? Is this alley okay to go down? Is that person going to be fun to have dinner with, or will it be awful? There's just so many new thoughts. And I really, maybe other people are more interesting than I am, but I, I've always said, I feel like you have maybe 20 thoughts that you just cycle through repeatedly all day long, every day. And it's just exhausting. And I hate myself. So it's nice to escape those thoughts I think it really is and when you even just small things when you notice something that's culturally different and you're like huh just the novelty is so reinvigorating it's the best yeah yeah Um, and apparently it slows your life down apparently you know just that's why things time goes slower when you're little it's because every single thing is new it's novelty that apparently you know slows down your time slows down your life and that's the way right when you're old and things are very rarely novel any longer um that's the way to slow it down and keep your neurons going so we all need to travel more if we want to stay young that's right Mm -hmm. um so tell me a bit about the book what I was doing while you were breeding for someone who hasn't read it what's your kind of elevator pitch for it uh the general pitch is that it like we were just talking about uh it was my way during this very um high paced high um intensity career to escape and get to be a different version of myself. I called her Kristen adjacent, um, just vaguely a little bit different. And it's uh, every chapter is a trip and it covers 15 years of my life or so. Uh, I was uh, never single in my twenties. I had two back-to-back long-term boyfriends. And so got single at the first time for the first time at 29 and kind of had my wild twenties and my thirties because I meant a lot to me before I had that one baby at 50 that I had these single girl adventures that I just had never had um, and learned how to be lonely and learned how to be alone and travel by myself and just proved something to myself. So it covers that time of falling in love with solo travel as friends all getting married and having babies and there's no one to travel with until maybe somebody gets divorced and then they come around for another trip or two, but then they get married again before I've done it even once. And so then I'm traveling alone again and um, I fall in love, especially with Argentina and go back there a few times. And there's kind of a same time next year, Argentine boyfriend, who's like a will they won't they in the book. And, um, and then it, I, it leads up to the very last moment, uh, before the book was 
turned in for its final edit, I'm writing about what happened to me and I won't spoil it, except everyone knows I ended up having a baby. Um, but the book just ends with me meeting my now husband and moving in with his two kids uh, into uh, into our house. So that's the book. I love it. And you have some really wild stories in there. I feel like the combination of your voice, your tone of voice in your writing, and then just the stories, I feel it's really easy to feel like you're a friend, you know, as you're reading oh, it. Yeah, it's super nice. enjoyable. I'm glad. I'm um, glad. Well, I always said that the book is a little bit of a one or a five star book. And, uh, and I think that I might be maybe a one or a five star like person. Uh, because that's what happens in book reviews for memoirs is first you get the book reviewed and then you get your personality reviewed. So, you know, <laughs> I'm a strong cheese. You're into blue cheese or you're not. I don't know. So yeah, you'll either feel like my friend or you'll say this woman is trash. And you know what? That's great too. We it's all... lucky you've been thickening up that skin in Hollywood, eh? Yeah, it's all good. It only hurts a huge amount. It's fine. Sometimes I get the sense that writers do things for their narrative selves you know, that like the Nora Ephron saying everything is copy. Do you think that's ever true for you that you kind of do the thing that you think will lead to the best story that you can maybe get material out of down the line? I mean, yes, sometimes consciously, for sure. Uh, definitely wanting to be interesting and have interesting stories to tell was always, you know, part of that answer of what did I want in terms of my life when I was little. Um, I just wanted to be interesting. I just didn't want to be like everybody else. And, and for, you know, for a long time, I defined that as being somebody who wasn't getting married and having kids. Uh, because I think there's a version of getting married and having kids where you do become like everybody else. Um, or at least I guess the way that I define becoming like everybody else is living a small life still. Um, you know, staying on your cul-de-sac, staying in your tract home, you know, keeping it small. Um, and so that happened. Um, but then there's all of these things that now at 50, that just happened to me this month. Um, I look back at the way that I got married and the way that I had a baby and what happened, you know, during the birth and what, and things that have happened in terms of making a TV show now about my book and what happened, moving my entire family to Argentina for four months this year. And all of these things, kind of everything that happened on that trip and the making of the show has also been kind of heightened drama that is a kind of book of its own. So I, I was talking to somebody recently who said, I think that somehow the way you do everything becomes story worthy. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe that's why I waited to have a baby is because the drama of having a baby in your 40s is high. The story ends up being a big one, but also, I don't know. Some people seem to just have babies in their forties and it seems pretty normal. I don't mm. know. I, I, I tend to bring drama and story with me in my life. I don't know. I think it's a good way to be. I can remember when I was young feeling like, I remember saying to my mom, like, I want to live an extraordinary life. And for me, as it was for you, that meant I do not want to have a child. <laughs> that was like not on my agenda at all when I, until really I was in my mid thirties. Because I felt like in some way that it would be restrictive, which it is, let's be honest, it is restrictive. But I think I also felt that it would be just really, it's just generic. I was like, everyone does it. There's nothing like special about it. And therefore, yeah. if I do it, there'll be nothing special about me. <laughs> there was but a like, moment on an episode of Girls when um, when Lena Dunham's character is like, it's she's spending this day with this like, successful doctor kind I love of that episode for the weekend that episode was so good yeah and in bed she says to him like don't tell anybody but I think I want to be happy and it's this like shameful reveal uh you know that maybe she might want to live in a house nice house money. nice brownstone with money yeah like uh-oh <laughs> and like I, I that resonated for me more than anything in so long it was just this, it was almost like a shame-filled thing that you might want to admit that happened to me you know maybe in my mid to late thirties where I was like, okay, have I checked off the things I needed to check off? Like, okay, am I ready? Do I want this thing that is like everybody else? And, oh, it was really a shameful moment for me in a lot of ways. And like, okay, I like it. I was so proudly not the woman in my thirties trying to get married, especially on dates with guys. It was like sort of something that I, I wore as a badge. I'm looking for guys with, you know, great guys with commitment problems. It was my little <laughs> thing that I chirped that works great, by the way. Um, and I just, I just really 
I really was proud of that uh, as though to want love and lifelong companionship is, is a really shameful thing. And I was, I was thinking about um, what has, what I've read and what I've watched and what I've listened to that kind of shifted um, some things in me and made me look at how judgy I have always been about having babies and getting married. And the biggest thing for me is uh, Jesse Klein, who is a friend of mine too, wrote a book about motherhood a couple of years ago. And it, she, there was a chapter in it that, that, that they published as excerpts that struck me so deeply in my heart. I'm a huge fan of Jessie and how she just writes about things in general, but she's also been like somebody who writes about her like crazy single girl um, adventures. That was her last book that was very funny. And then she wrote this book about motherhood. And for years, people have been saying, so are you going to write now about motherhood? And you had this amazing birth story and you have had this great crazy adventure, you know, living in another country, making a TV show about your life with your six-year-old in tow and your husband um, and my parents, good God. Um, are you going to write about this? And, oh, you know, here, write your irreverent take on motherhood for this TV show idea or that TV show idea. And I've always had this like, ugh, like the last thing that anybody needs is a quote unquote irreverent take on motherhood. Like, aren't I crazy? Oh my God, it's wine o'clock with the ladies on the block. Like, just kill me, just truly kill me first. And then God bless Jesse. She wrote this chapter about her own um, distaste for the mommy blog. But then she had this moment uh, in the grocery store buying uh, snacks for her toddler in the middle of like new motherhood kind of haze and who am I and what is this life? And am I the most boring person on earth? where she hears um, Elizabeth Gilbert talking about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and this description of the hero's journey. And it strikes Jesse in this incredible way because what he's describing as a hero's journey that is always for men out there while the women stay home, have babies, presumably not having a hero's journey because they're just home keeping the hearth fire burning. The way he described what a hero's journey was struck her as exactly her experience that she was having as a mother. Um, and then she kind of understands that actually, perhaps what if motherhood is also a hero's journey? It's just instead of a journey outward, it's a journey inward. And why we judge, why we have, you know, why we judge a mommy book, a mommy blog. And she said something that just like struck me down where she said, you know, can you imagine ever judging anybody for writing a daddy story or a daddy blog? Do you know what that would be called? It would be called for who the belt for whom the belt holds. <laughs> that would be what we would call a daddy book story. You know, Hemingway gets to do it and not be judged. And I was like, oh my God, it's misogyny. Like it's my own self-induced misogyny that's made me feel like being a mother and being a wife is giving up and something you do when you're done with your journey. Like, oh, oh, there it is. More internalized misogyny. I hadn't noticed, you know, at 48 or something. And it's just amazing. And she writes this amazing thing. I was just was looking at it again because we were going to be talking. And, and she writes about this. I'm just going to read it. She says, uh, you know, why do we not look at this? Why are we, why is it hard for us all to think about motherhood? Is it actually a heroic thing to do? And this is what she writes. It's because for so many people, our safest, sweetest, earliest memories are of nestling in our mother's lap in her rocking warmth hearing her sing as we get milk drunk and sleepy and burrow heavy-eyed into the crook of her soft arm. And if you knew that your mother's journey was intrinsically a hero's journey, if that was in any way an established narrative in our culture, you'd have to accept that this memory of womb-like safety, this foundation upon which so much of our identity is built, was often just an illusion. You'd have to realize that while you were blissed out on your mother's lap, one of those epic battles the kind that envelops heroes as they fight their way out of a ring of fire was raging just above your head. No one wants to believe that in the moments you felt the most peaceful, the woman cradling you so softly was shielding you from a sword that she herself was holding. That is so good. Isn't that so good? That is so good. I know. It's. I'm like, oh shit, I should have written about all of these adventures of having a baby and being a mother. It's not boring. It's not 
hack. It's heroic. And she did it. God oh, bless shit. her. I salute her. Damn, I need to reread that. That's in, that's from her book? That yes. Excerpt? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's, it's kind of amazing. So I've tried to rethink all of that. And I have found these like moments of of transcendence and heroism, I feel like in just the act of mothering Mm -hmm. and things that have been so valuable that I think make me better towards the world, better towards myself, better creating, you know, all of these good things have happened from it. And uh, it is the hardest thing on earth for sure. And so I salute the heroes that have Mm -hmm. babies. I had a dream when I was in my third trimester it was one of those dreams where you find an another room to your house that you didn't know was there. And I was like, oh my God, there's this whole other room back here and it's huge and look at it, it's beautiful. And then when I woke up, I was like, oh, that's about wow. me. Having, I'm about to discover this whole new room inside myself that's huge and beautiful. Yeah, it's also kind of, not beautiful. Also, uh, also like, horrendous and yeah. horrible, <laughs> <laughs> The hardest, most awful thing on earth, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, why is it so, I mean, I know your friend Jessie did a beautiful job, but why is it so hard to do a good job of writing about motherhood? I don't know. I mean, it's it's weird because I feel like writing about traveling and meeting boys has also been done a million times. Mm. You know, writing about falling in love has also been done a million times. And yet um, writing that doesn't feel tired to me. You know, that feels like an exciting thing to write about. Um, uh, I just I just don't know. I guess it feels like I don't know. I guess it's all of the reasons that Jesse just talked about. I think it's internalized misogyny. I think that it's undervaluing this thing um, that because society undervalues it. Um, you know, the like the critiques of my book are always interesting to me too, because you know, they always say that criticism is more about the critic than about what they're critiquing. And when I started to write the book, I sold it after I wrote a couple of essays. And so then I had to write it after it was already sold. And so I was working with an editor as I wrote, and I had thought it was just going to be some David Sedaris-y funny travel stories. And then the editor was saying, you know, it will get repetitive. Women who write memoirs um, are read mostly by other women, and women want to know about who you are back home and why you are the way you are and what your job is and what your family was like and what your friends are like and, you know, dig in deeper to your life. And so I accidentally wrote a memoir instead of a series of travel essays. Um, And so I got kind of deeper into these places that I would have never, ever, ever sat down and done because I felt like I have not had an extraordinary life. I am not uh, Hillary Clinton. Why does anyone want to read my memoir? And so I kind of accidentally wrote one. And she would, whenever I kind of was talking too much about the place that I was looking at or interesting cultural moments, she would say, okay, that's fine a little bit, but let's get back on track of you, your friend, the person. Give the the people what they want, Kristen. (laughs) Yeah, the funny stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I would do that. And then there's been critiques that my travel book is not enough of a travel book and it's too much about boys and it's too much about, you know, funny haha and not about like thinking about the, the poverty of the place that I'm in, maybe, you know, enough. Even if I talk about it, there's a joke afterwards. So am I making fun of the impoverished people? No, of course I'm not, but there is a tone that I'm keeping. Um, and so I feel like that also is the editor was in the middle of her own set of this is what a woman should write about. A woman should write about boys, you know? A woman should write about um, her feelings and her parents. Um, You know, she maybe shouldn't just write about straight travel. Uh, and, And then the readers, you know, what should a woman who is an adventurer, who is saying in the title, what I was doing while you were breeding, she doesn't want to have kids and get married in at least in this time in her life, um, the way that everybody else is doing and like that everybody is telling her that she needs to do because of the age of her ovaries. And so why is she also chasing boys, you know, and there's this whole, is it feminist to want sex, want love? You know, I, I would love that I had the brain that was not um, tied up in, I hope I meet a cute guy 
when I check into this hotel so I can have a little three-day travel romance because those are the greatest on earth in addition to seeing this place. Oh, I hope that I meet somebody because wouldn't it be so much fun to have somebody to do this with instead of being completely alone for 16 hours. You know, I if I didn't have that piece of my brain, I would have so much more extra space that I'm sure these people who give me a one star in my book and my personality have to think about charity work, to think about culture, to dig deeper into something else that they dig deeper into. Um, I would love to have the extra space in my brain that has been always taken up with. It would be really fun to have sex or have a romance. That sounds great. That's just not the brain I was given. Maybe it's when I was born. Maybe it's what I've internalized. Maybe it's just okay for women to want to have adventures and learn about another place and learn about how other people in this other place live um, and also have a romance. And for me, the greatest part of a travel romance was suddenly I was at a local's birthday party. I was learning what they were eating for breakfast. I was at a spot that I couldn't have found on my own. And um, you know, that was just sort of my way in. So I feel like all of these things that we all internalize about what a woman should or shouldn't be, is it okay to want to get married and have babies or is it anti-feminist? Is it okay? What's okay for us all to do? This is so much noise and nonsense that all of our brains are taken up with. Even those people who have all that extra space because they don't want to get laid, they have to take up all that space with judging me. So that's stuff, you know? And Hemingway can just write about having sex. He can write about his father. He can write about travel. He can write about war. He can write about whatever the fuck he wants. And nobody talks about whether or not he should have a little bit more of one of those other categories. Um, so I put that out there for all of us because as I'm rereading this book and doing a little 2023 pass on it, I'm having to look at things like, oh, I would have loved to write more about this thing that happened on that trip there that wasn't on this story drive. Um, but I'm not doing that because that's who I was at 40. What I was thinking about that then is valid. It was where I was then. It's not maybe what I'm thinking about now, but it's still inspiring some people. And so I don't want to undo something that people are liking and is getting them to buy plane tickets and tweet me pictures of my book on their knees on their first solo adventure. So, you know, there's a lot of self-forgiveness that has to happen in a memoir too. Um, which I recommend everyone writes one, even if you show it to no one, because that happens. I had a guest on my other podcast who also had just written a travel memoir. And she was saying that she wanted to write something completely different because most women's travel memoirs are always a healing journey. She's like, they're only allowed to be a healing journey. Yeah. You have to be crying in wine. You have yeah. to be, you know, you have to be, you know, praying. You have to going be through recovering. a divorce or whatever. <laughs> You just go, yeah. I was I in my show, I talk about how in Ichi Mama Tambien, like the two boys get to like travel and have sex with each other because they're 18. The woman gets to do it because she's in her 30s and dying. Like she'll be <laughs> dead. That's why she gets to fuck those two boys and take a trip. It's even though she's married, because she's gonna be dead. That's the way it is for us. We have to cry. We have to be recovering. We can't just go have a bigger life. I love the trip movies. I love them. Um, and there's just two guys in a car driving and being funny, having a great time. Why do they get to do this? Because they're white men with British accents. It's delightful to watch. <laughs> Women have to be suffering. Uh, one thing you do really well in your book is touch on the pain of not following the typical timeline of conventional milestones and of wishing that you wanted the same things as everyone else at the exact same time as everyone else wanted them. I relate to this because it took me so long to decide to want to be a mom. Everyone around me was like, yeah, we're going to try. We're going to start trying. And like, I've always known that I want to be, I was like, what? You've never talked about this before. First of all, I thought we'd all agreed that we were just going to have fun for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was unsaid. Um, and so I felt in a lot of pain at that point because I was still ambivalent about it. And I was like, I'm not ready, but also I know time is running out and everyone else is like moving something's on wrong with you. Like maybe yeah, something's wrong with you. Yeah. Everyone yeah. else is moving on. So how did you cope with that feeling of being quote unquote left behind? Well, a little bit of it was, I just tried to tell myself that everybody else did it in their twenties and I didn't. And so it was my time. And, and I also just got mad at everybody who wanted to talk to me about, you know, the, it's going to be hard to have a baby. Um, Were so people having that. that conversation with you? 
Your mom, what? probably. Was okay. your mom? Yeah. Everybody, really, everybody. Everybody. Everybody was like, you know, I'm like, I'm years away from wanting a baby when I was 35. And they're like, well, how many years do you think you have? And to be fair, I really, 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 at that point in my life was absolutely okay with the idea of adoption um, or some other way, surrogacy, anything. I was like, I really don't need to have a mini me. I don't need to, to be made in my body. I don't need that. And I really mean that and meant that um, because I loved every baby that I saw at Starbucks. I'm like that baby I could take home right now and feel completely fulfilled as a mother. Love that baby so much. Um, I always love babies. Um, I just didn't want to be burdened with one. And then when I was like 37 or 38 or something, it kind of occurred to me that maybe some guy that I might end up with someday, uh, because I just, I was too uh, fearful to be a single mom. I could, I, I, my friends who were doing it by themselves, I'm like, you're the, I don't know how they do person. it. Yeah. You're the bravest Her- person. True heroes. Seen. Yes, truly. Like I just, I'm like, I'd rather do it with adoption later with somebody who can help babysit. Like, I just can't do it by myself. I'm too scared. Um, so I'm like, you know, somebody someday might really care that it is our genetic baby. So I'm going to freeze some eggs, stick them in a freezer, not think about it. Really casually did it. Got a ton of eggs. They're in the freezer. Great. I would go to the clinic and there would be these sad couples holding each other's hands in just hell, the hell of the process that I would someday be in just so sad and so depressed and all of that. And I was just like, this is great. Thank God I am this lucky person who can afford to do this, you know, because insurance covered no dollars of it. And um, I'm going to stick these in there and I have insurance now and a hundred percent positively, these are going to make babies. Like the doctor is telling me I have quote unquote donor ovaries quote, uh, if I were younger, P.S. Um, but wow, this is great. I'm doing great. I get to do it all, right? Of course, none of those eggs turned into a single baby. None of those. And as soon as I you know, did the round and got only one embryo out of those many eggs and that embryo didn't take, the doctor was like, well, yeah, we haven't really thawed that many eggs out. We mostly thought embryos. We don't really know. Probably should have done two or three rounds. You know, didn't tell me any of these things all those years earlier. Um, and that's when I suddenly went on an insane, I need to make a baby kick, uh, that involved years of IVF and heartbreak and so many dollars and so much science and so much deep, 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 just heartbreak and depression. And I still, to this day, could not tell you what piece of that had to do with proving that I could have it all. Like, I can, it is definitely a piece of it. I have zero idea how much, what a percentage of it that was. But all those people who said, if you don't do it now, you're not going to be able to do it. I was like, fuck all y'all. I can do it when I want to do it. Like women should get to have babies when they want the way that men do. It's not fair. And science and freezing eggs will fix that. And I'm going to do it. And uh, that's not what happened. I needed all kinds of help, um, all kinds of help. I needed donor eggs. I needed all kinds of help. I lived in the hospital for three months. It was not what happened. I do not wish I did anything differently. I got the baby I was meant to have. This child is the one. Um, and I did not want to have a baby a minute before I did. I didn't want to rush into it with my husband. I wanted to get to know each other at a normal pace, even though we met it. 39 and 44, whatever he was. Um, I just, I don't regret it. It's exactly the life I wanted to live despite all of that hardship. We both have daughters. And I think a lot about what I'm going to tell her when she's older about squeezing as much out of life as she possibly can. And, you know, what I can take from my own experiences, like what I would have done differently. Do you ever think about that? Like, what would you tell her based on everything, this full life that you've had? What are like some nuggets that you're going to share with her when she's old enough? Well, I hope that she'll let me give her egg freezing for her college graduation. <laughs> truly, truly. Because like, that's when you have to do it. That's when the eggs work. Like, when you're you like 21. So deeply young. It's insane. The number of good embryos I got from this healthy 22-year-old woman, God bless her, um, is bananas. And it was so easy to get pregnant with her eggs that I was angry about it for like a year. I was literally angry at this easy, easy first try take that it took to get a million good embryos out of this young woman. So 
even, I hope that she'll let me, she'll think I'm crazy and pushy and I'll be, I'll be demonized. Like all mothers are, will always be demonized for all of time. But I hope I can say it in such a way to her that she takes it the way I want to give it, which is like, let me give you the freedom to choose like every man on earth gets until he's 95 years old and can still make a baby, you know, like, just let me give you this thing that will let you do anything you want, you know, like, let me do it. Um, because it's so unfair that we live so much longer and yet are not fertile longer. Um, it's just completely unfair and you just don't know what you're going to want. I didn't know I was going to really care about putting a baby in my belly. And I didn't know that I think the best thing I've ever experienced in my entire life by a million is breastfeeding. Who knew? Like, who knew that was going to be the thing for me that I I, I would have done it till she was 100 years old if she hadn't broken up with me at 15 months because she's stronger than I am and doesn't really need me in any way <laughs> uh, already. Um, like, who knew that was going to be this thing? And I'm so grateful for that experience that so many people don't get to have, even who have easy babies uh, from sex. So we all have these different things we get and we don't get. And I hope that she'll let me give her that for choices. I hope that she will never get married in her 20s. I think that's a just, I think that there's so much to be had for not getting married in your 20s. I hope she'll hold out. But if she falls in love, like a lot of people do and get married young and are happy, I hope that I support and, you know, don't judge her and I'm happy for her because, you know, I have a lot of cousins who are Christian, who live in Arizona got married to somebody they met at 14 when they were 22 and they have four children and they're 30 and they really do seem maybe more peaceful and happier than I am like as a human being and I think some of that is religion I think you can really get some peace with religion that those of us who just can't believe can't get hmm. um, and I think some of that is the psychological phenomenon that the more choices you have the less happy you are so yep. there's that yeah. Um, I don't know. There's a lot to look at there. So I, but I hope I'll support and love her, even if she takes this completely other journey, as long as she's the happiest she could possibly be. But I hope she'll take a minute and uh, learn who she is bef before she's with somebody else. Because I don't know, I had a six year boyfriend from 20 to 26. And when we broke up at 26, I felt like I'd lost limbs. And that's just not how it feels in any other breakup after that first breakup, because you are whole when you start out. And I wasn't whole when I started out with him at 20. Uh, and so I hope she'll be whole before, you know, entering into a big long-term lifelong relationship. Oh, that's lovely. I love that. So you used a donor with her. I didn't realize that, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. When did you get to that point where you were like, okay, I'm open to other options? I mean, I know you said you had thought about adoption anyway, but I imagine you yeah. tried with your own eggs first and then you were like, okay, let's yeah. try it. One round, else. those eggs mm. didn't turn into anything. I did five rounds of IVF. Five? Oof, yes. That's rough. It was terrible. My doctor had kind of said, because all of my numbers looked great and all of my husband's numbers looked great. He said, I support six rounds. You, it, It's in there somewhere, probably. It's just what you can tolerate. And uh, I couldn't tolerate anymore. Like the last couple rounds really felt to me like I was checking off boxes to have tried, but I didn't have any hope because mm -hmm. I just wasn't even getting normal embryos um, was the problem. And so finally, after five rounds, I'm like, I, I, I give up and, and then chose a donor. And that was an amazing experience because the first time I did it, I did it like in a rush. The hardest part for me was the not moving forward, the like, you have to take a month off before you can do the next round. Cause I, I do, I like to do not sit. And, uh, so immediately once I realized I was going to try donor, it was like, okay, get me the book. Let me look at people. I'm going to choose one go. And in, I was filled with hormones and deep depression and I was sad about the whole thing. And, um, I didn't show the women at all to my husband. And he was like, yeah, no, you choose that. I'm like, not part of that. And I'm like, yeah, I cannot handle a man that I'm married to saying that's the woman I'd like to have a baby with. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you to that part of the process. So I chose this woman. But you don't get to see her, her picture, right? There's like a baby. Yeah, you see pictures. No, you see all the pictures. Oh, really? You can see videos. They'll talk to you. They'll meet you at coffee. They'll, you get oh, pictures whoa. of them everything it is a dating profile 
and you you know about whether or not their parents had braces, you know about their grandparents having glasses, you know how everybody and their ancestors died. And so I was like, well, I want to find somebody that is has all the good parts of me that I like and cleans out all the not so great parts of me and my family. Like maybe we get rid of anybody that has depressive alcoholics or addicts in their family history. Like maybe we just kind of clear, you know, my husband's family has a lot of neurological stuff. So how about nobody's ever had Parkinson's or Alzheimer's? Like clean, 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 right? Which is obviously a problematic word when talking about genetics. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I picked this woman and uh, two months in, she's like, my life isn't working out the way I want to right now. I have to pull out. And so that was a heartbreak. But then I went through the process again. And I suddenly, I think, was not filled with hormones and had adjusted to the concept a little better. And so that time I found myself showing different people that that were striking a chord for me to my husband. And, you know, it was, you know, nobody with a kissy face in a front seat of a car for their photo selfie. You know, it was, I, you know, I, there were I, cosmetologists. I'd probably, anybody who had like a, a life in beauty seemed like that was turning me off. There were all these things, right? But it also turned me off to look for the very high priced Harvard educated supermodels, which you can also filter for. I'm like, no, I don't want that. I want, I want somebody who I would be proud was my daughter. And I, for me, what that meant was somebody who just felt like a good person who had interests that were similar to mine that felt good. So this woman that I ended up finding, I just was like, oh, I would be proud if she were my daughter. She was a do-gooder. She wanted to go into the Peace Corps and so and work in developing countries. And she didn't want to have kids because of that. She had a 13-year-old or an eight-year-old donor egg sister. So I'd watched her mother go through infertility and donor egg processes when she was 13 and wanted to give that to another woman. She works in a battered women's shelter. She worked for AmeriCorps. And I don't know if goodness is genetic or taught, but I thought just in case that seems good. You know, she was smart. She had worked her way through college. I didn't want to talk to her, but I asked her some questions that I asked her to video herself um, responding to so I could just get a vibe. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I would want to hang out with her and so suddenly, instead of looking for a replacement for me, which I'd been looking for the first time around, I was looking for Finney. I was looking for my daughter, you know, and I like the way I describe it to Finney, who knows all about this, is that I found somebody who I could see Finney twinkling in her eyes Aww. and this, there I could see her in there. And so that was who I looked for. And she and I have exchanged, we've never met, but we've exchanged these really gorgeous letters over the years, um, starting with the day that she was donating the eggs, I left her a gift and a note with the doctor. Um, and the way that she kind of talked about it, when I talked to her about struggling sometimes with that feeling of who is this baby inside of me, those first few months of like, oh, I feel like I'm still adopting. Like I'm just kind of housing an adopted baby is kind of how I felt at first when she was a few months into my tummy. Um, and she said, if it helps you at all, I don't think of her at all as my child. If anything, I think of her as a sister because, you know, we have the same DNA, but she's not my child. And the idea of her as a sister to my daughter was really um, provided me a lot of peace and really helped me wrap my brain around it. And then it sort of freed me up to think about like, oh, it's just the same as when two people come together for some reason, they're attracted to each other. and boom, there's a human. It's exactly the same way, except there were three of us. I was attracted to my husband for some reason that brought us together. And I was attracted to her for some reason that brought us together. And so in the, it's the exact same process. It just involved another, another piece that turned us into a triangle, you know? And, and so it's this kind of gorgeous thing uh, that I don't write about, you know, I'll talk about it. I'm not secretive about it because Finney knows about it, but I don't really want to write about it because it's kind of her story to tell. Um, but you know, podcasts here and there, I feel like are not as forever. So, <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing that because I've had, and I've had some fertility struggles myself. I had like pregnancy loss and I have a lot of friends who have had struggles and had various treatments, but I haven't had anyone close to me who's a donor yet. 
So I've always been curious about what that process is like. So thank you for sharing that because I think it's really educational for people listening. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's educational. And I mean, I, I live in Los Angeles. The nurses and fertility doctors and people that I spent two years with made babies for all of your favorite celebrities who are like in People magazine, in some gauzy thing, always with twins, always yeah, with twins, always a miracle, always a miracle. Just I guess I fell enough in love with this hot guy who you also recognize uh, that 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 God wanted me to have this baby at 48. And those are just all donor eggs. That's what they are. <laughs> I've all the people around me who were supposed to not tell those secrets all told all the secrets and they just don't admit it. And it's not fair to everybody who thinks that it's going to happen because it just doesn't happen. No, it's so misleading. I've even yeah, had conversations with friends who've been like, no, I know somebody who had a baby at like 50 using yeah. her own eggs. And I was like, no, no, that's not possible. <laughs> it's not just happened. not. <laughs> no, nope, it isn't. And people, I guess that there's maybe some shame around it. Like even when like I had the pregnancy loss and it took me a while to get pregnant anyway. I remember feeling some sense of deep shame. Like, you know, I don't know. I think as a woman, you just imagine you're going to be incredibly fertile and yeah. that that's going to last. Even if you know, like logically, that's not, that's not going to be possible. It's how you picture it. You picture your story being like, oh, and then on the second try, we were pregnant and then happily ever after. Yeah. Well, and it very also, rarely goes that I've way. Yeah. And I have a very romanticized need for magic in mm -hmm. every area of my life from travel through the creative process. I've just never wanted, I've always felt, I think like if things are a lot of work, they're not meant to be, yes. and you know, I wouldn't go, you know, before apps, I was, you know, it was online dating when I was dating and I would not go online for such a long time. Cause I'm like, that is not romantic. That is not Starcross, this is not magical. Like, no, no, no. I need a better story. 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 And so, even scheduling sex, even just that part of trying, right, is so feels like you're somehow taking control. Um, even choosing which embryo from this trillion freaking healthy embryos that this, you know, 21 year old made me, I was like, I think I, you know, because there's they're numbered, they're numbered, they get grades. I'm like, you know, if there needs to be some sort of process where somehow the universe chooses which of these embryos gets implanted in me and not me, like even choosing gender because I could, because I genetically tested, because I was just trying so hard to have fewer heartbreaks and fewer miscarriages. Um, I, I was like, oh, I wish I didn't have this much control. Um, you want it to just happen a little bit, but you know, it happens. Yeah. And then it's, it is magical. Like the person who comes out is a magical experience and, and, and what you, the, the fact that I made her out of clay almost, you know, that like, we really were like, okay, let's get out there with some like gold mining tools and get in the river, you know, and start digging and sorting and not finding gold for such a long time. And like that finding it and turning it into a ring or whatever it is. Like, I really feel like we made her with our hands and like, that's magical. That's a special yeah. thing to work that hard. And then this is who you get this, like, she's very Martian, like she's very kind of stardusty, this child. Um, and I'm like, this is, this came from magic, you know, it feels that way. And also will and science and money. There's those things. And <laughs> those things are important too. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to read one passage from your book that really stood out to me. It's about uh, trading awesome for awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you're lucky and healthy and live in a country where you have enough to eat and no fear that you're going to get shot when you walk out the door, life is an endless series of choosing between two things you want almost equally. And you have to evaluate and determine which awesome thing you want infinitesimally more and then give up that other awesome thing that you want almost exactly as much. You have to trade awesome for awesome. Everyone I know, no matter what they choose, was at least a little in mourning for that other thing. I think all the time about living alongside, like the torment of living alongside the other versions of ourselves that we didn't get to explore, right? That the things that we really wanted to try and we just couldn't try. Do you ever wonder what you'd be doing if you hadn't chosen marriage and motherhood? Um, no, because I know I would just be doing exactly what I had been doing for such a long time. 
um, because I was so very cooked by the time I got married at 41, almost, um, I, I just, and I, and I loved my life so much. It just would have been more of it, you know, and I have women who I was having those adventures with who are still having them, who are, you know, in their forties and fifties and still traveling and having the same exact kind of adventures and doing their career and, and, and making their life. And that's what I would still be doing for sure. You know, that awesome for awesome idea is one of those ideas that I both stand by because people like it and also feel like, you know, uh, 10 years later, I'm like, well, I mean, it's also a series of choosing between horrible and horrible, right? And <laughs> it's a very entitled lucky lady thing that I address a little bit in that passage um, in terms of the birth lottery that we all got to be born in a place where we have a lot of options. Um, uh, you know, it's a very lucky lady thing to feel that way about the world and like, oh, that's sweet. That's I like, I love that girl who felt that way about her life. Like good for her. <laughs> um, there's been so much horrible in the last 10 years for everybody, you know, like the planet has had such an array of just horrible, right? Like what is the least horrible option on, of our day in this pandemic lockdown? Like what is the least horrible, um, school shooting, black person killed in their car, like climate change, global warming, like what is the least horrible way to get through this particular day? Like there's been so much of that. It's, um, it's, it's sort of paralyzing. So I feel a little bit about that passage that way. I agree. I agree with you. And I see where you're coming from, but I think it speaks to this feeling that I think as someone who overanalyzes things a lot and overthinks things a lot, I want to believe that there is one right decision. Yeah. And that I need to discover, is it this decision or is it this? Like, which is the choice that I need to go with? And it's comforting to me to be like, oh, maybe there just isn't a right choice. You just have yeah. to pick something and life just works out around it, you know? Yeah, for everything, you know? And mm -hmm. even, I don't know, I have a very, my, my, my best friend, Natalia, who's Sasha in the book, is the most pragmatic person I know. And the way she kind of talks about every decision in life is very, very um, kind of clinical black and white um, Harvard Business School um, of her. And even like when, you know, you know, we've had so many friends, you know, so many friends, a little or a lot unhappy in their marriages who get divorced or not. And, um, and she'll talk about, you know, the trade. Yes, you're trading this set of misery that you have when you're married um, to be divorced but you're going to get a new set of misery. Like there is a lot of bad that comes with divorce, especially when you have kids, right? Like there's a lot of heartbreak and, and sharing, you know, not seeing your kid half the time, like the new people that come into your lives. Are there new stepkids? Are there not? Who treats who well and who doesn't? You've lost half of your assets, right? All of these things, right? And judging, you know, whether or not you're going to um, have more happiness or more sadness is obviously super individual, but I think that I watch her coach a lot of people that I think often think if I get out of this relationship, even if it's just a, you know, a, a, a partnership, not a marriage, not without kids, if I get out of this relationship, then I'll be happy. Like, yes, you will have happy things and you'll get rid of some of the, th and you'll get some happiness that you want. That is what you're imagining. And also there will be a different kind of misery because every life has both, right? There's this great um, uh, kind of mindfulness book called The Full Catastrophe um, that's based, it's a quote from, um, I think, The King and I, maybe, uh, when uh, he the, the character talks about like, oh, make sure, I've got marriage, kids, the full catastrophe. And the idea being that, you know, full catastrophe living is basically accepting all that life is, right? Every version of everything has so much catastrophe no matter what you do. So you're going to get so much catastrophe. You're going to get so much joy. You're going to get both on any road. It's just about what is the one that I want today? What have I done the most of what's, you know, for me, it's like, what's been checked off, what's new. So for me, marriage and kids was new. It became novel instead of, all right, like I'll do what everybody does and I'll give up those other novel things. Because once you do that, those other novel things, you won't do them. And, you know, my friends who got married and had babies young are like, oh, now my, you know, they're now, their kids are in college. And they're like, now I get to do what you did. And I'm like, oh, no, you're not going to do what I did. I mean, you're going to have a great time, I'm sure. But you are going to travel in a real different way at 50 with a husband 
than I did. You know, it's really a different experience. And I really wanted the single girl travel experience and the laying on your couch lonely at night and being okay with that too. And just like, I just wanted to know that when I got married, it wasn't because I was afraid of not being married. You know, it was that I was, I knew that the choice I was making was because it was something I wanted more, not because I was scared and needed to be saved and didn't like where I was. Like, it was so important to me to love the life that I had to give up. Mm, That's a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much. But before you go, Kristen, what's one thing you've read, watched, or listened to that has brought clarity or helped you navigate these big life decisions in some way? See this Jesse Klein book. That was how I got back to um, rereading it was thinking about that question. And um, I really, I really recommend reading her book. What was the name of the book? I'll show myself out. Okay, perfect. I'm definitely going to include that in the show notes so people can click on it and buy it. I'm going to buy it myself because that quote that you read me was mind blowing. Amazing. <laughs> so good. Amazing. Thank also, you. So another book that I read early on um, that some people didn't like because there was sex in it uh, was called Shutter Babe. And it was a, about a war photojournalist in the kind of uh, late 90s uh, who went to an incredible array of scary um, kind of heart-wrenching locations, but kind of, you know, writes about being on the back of a truck in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, like going through the mountains with some separatist group and getting her period, you know, <laughs> and like which French journalist she was having sex with that, that in Afghanistan. So either it will totally bug you if you want someone to just be focusing on their career because that's what matters and war and that's interesting. And if if you find sex interesting, then you're shallow. Don't read it. But for me, who likes a little, uh, a little fun, sexy stuff mixed in, because I feel like who doesn't want to be that woman who's doing both. I want to be the woman who's doing both. So that book too, a long time ago, um, really inspired me to want to be her. Thank you for listening to the Legacy Years podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would rate and review the show or share it with someone else you think might like it. You can find more of my work on these topics at thelegacyyears.substack.com. The link to subscribe, along with a handful of relevant links from the episode you just listened to, can be found in the show notes. I'll be back with another episode very soon. 